0: Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, your host. I started last week's show by really, really building up an article that we just debuted on Fromers.com. I don't think I oversold it. Uh, It is our yearly best places issue. But this year, instead of telling you to travel which is not very responsible right now, Uh, we decided to turn to amazing American authors of all sorts, Pulitzer Prize winning historians, women who have led social movements, best-selling novelists, and we asked them, if you were to look at the United States and look at the destinations in the United States and pick one that you would like your fellow citizens to know about, because perhaps it tells us something really important about our shared history or our culture, or it's a place we need now because it's a place of majestic beauty. Which place would you pick to help, and this is going to sound highfalutin, but to help heal the United States where we're coming out of a really, really terribly divisive era, and we need to start the healing. We need to understand that we have more in common than we have differences. So that article is up now. You can find it at Fromers.com slash places 2021 And to help me discuss that wonderful article, we have the Fromers staff here. We have Editor-in-Chief Jason Cochran and Managing Editor Zach Thompson. Hey, guys, thanks for being here. You know,
1: everyone who listens to your podcast has heard each of us individually with you. But this is the first time we've all been on at the same time.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm I'm nervous about a train wreck, but but hopefully that won't happen. But it'll
1: be a fun ride while it crashes. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. So, uh, Jason, why don't you take one of the first destinations? Sure. Tell us about what's in the piece. And if you want to add anything to what I just said, feel free.
1: Well, in a few of our cases, the writers t- spoke to us and we, we talked it out and, you know, figured out what they wanted to say. And sometimes they wrote something <clears throat> completely on their own. One of the, the first ones I want to share is a conversation that I had with a really wise, brilliant writer named Cheryl Strade if you've seen the movie wild or read the book wild that's her she was also dear sugar a, a, a advice columnist for many years so she's worn many hats but none of them poorly she's she's such a smart person she she's interesting she chose she chose the oregon coast and there's a couple reasons one and i love this it's that She said that the local authorities in their infinite wisdom many years ago decided to declare the entire coastline the public's land. It's like one giant park for everybody. It's not built up with high rise condos for the most part. It's just wild <laughs> to, to use her word. <laughs> right. and she loved that. Fa- and I think I love that too. I think it is, um, a, it's um, a beautiful, gentle reminder of what we all share in terms of the natural resources of the country. Now, if you don't know the natural resources of Oregon, it's p- incredible jagged rocks and mountains and a, and a really sometimes rough coast uh, surf coming in on the beach. And so it's it's quite a striking place to be. And she said that the f- three favorite things she loves to do when she travels is to walk, to cool. eat, yeah, and to cozy up with a book. And she said, Oregon Coast, because it's sometimes quite chilly or rainy and has those other things I just explained. It's um, perfect for all three because the seafood's terrific. The restaurants in these little villages up and down the coast. It's not a place that I've ever thought of taking a vacation, but hearing her describe it. Uh, I think I would really be willing to, and and boy, by the way, Cheryl is someone who really knows what, what how to travel because Wild is about her walking from the bottom of California all the way up the coast on the Pacific Crest Trail. So right, um, right. she really she does love to walk. There's no doubt about that. <laughs>
0: You know, we have a book, we have a book about the coast of uh, Oregon with Seattle and Portland. Uh, It's a top vacation destination, although it's not a place you go for swimming. As you said, you know, it's wild, rough surf, Mm -hmm. but these adorable towns, so much history, so much natural beauty. I I love that she picked it and and why she picked it. Me too. It reminds me of the
1: Goonies, if you're of a certain generation. Remember, Zach? The Goonies in what, 1985? haystack rock or whatever that's called on cannon beach i think that's mm-hmm. where they come out at the end. and she names the town we talked about the goonies it didn't make it to the final you know the town they live in is astoria oregon it's right up at the top at the columbia river's mouth and uh astoria is a great town that she recommends you visit and that's where they filmed the city parts of uh, of the goonies anyway that's for gen x we love that you live in oregon yeah oregon mm-hmm. i mean that's where she lives I don't know. I don't know where she lives. I think she probably has some sort of close affinity to that area because she also finished the trail when she, when she, uh, at the end of Wild. For sure.
0: Right. Yeah. All right, Zach, what's one that you want to highlight? Because let me say there are, is it 16 or 17? I think there are... 17 places highlighted. And at the end of all this, when we talk about the ones we're going to talk about, we'll we'll tell you what else is in it. But Zaka, what's one that you think was particularly interesting?
2: This is another one that um, was based on a conversation. um, And I interviewed this person. It was Kim Johnson who wrote a young adult novel that came out this year. It's her debut novel called This Is My America. And it focuses on wrongful incarceration and of a young black man and uh, his uh, a young woman's um, effort to actually, I think it's her father and it's her young woman's effort to get him out of jail. But uh, she recommended the, and I agree with this strongly, the national Memorial for peace and justice in Montgomery, Alabama, which mm. is uh, dedicated. It's a memorial dedicated to uh, black victims of lynching and racial terror in the United States between 1877. In 1950, so about the end of Reconstruction to the start of the modern um, civil rights era, it opened in 2018 through uh, the work of Brian Stevenson and his Equal Justice Initiative, and uh, it's been widely covered. But if you don't know what it is, it's on the six-acre site um, in Montgomery, and it's uh, the the centerpiece of it is this walkway that has these like hundreds, I think 800 uh, weathered steel columns. Uh, inscribed with the names of u uh, s counties where lynchings took place, and the names Oof. of um, all the people killed there, and the walkway kind of slopes downward as you as you walk through it, so eventually the columns are hanging overhead uh it it 's like you know black bodies swinging in the southern breeze as Billy Holiday sang yeah. uh, strange fruit but um there's also a accompanying legacy museum they call it that has sort of the history of african- African Americans in the um United States injustice and the triumphs there. Um, and, and she, uh, Kim Johnson, uh, the uh, author, selected it because um, she says she wanted to focus on how the lynching history of the U.S. links to this connection of mass incarceration of black and brown men and sort of this legacy of policing black bodies. And she, she, what she said she appreciates about it is that every black life lost is mentioned is uh, etched in stone. Or steel, wow. actually, and that when she sees those pieces, she thinks, you know, that could have been somebody's parent. Did they have uh. a child who raised that child? And how, how was that trauma passed on to the next person? So there is like a heavy weight to it, I think. But also what she pointed out was a sense of resolution because now that it's finally been recognized and can't be taken away.
0: Yeah, I was so glad she chose that one for the museum itself, which is an incredibly important new museum. It's only been around for about two years now, as well as for the city of Montgomery, which is a city, believe it or not, I know fairly well, because in another lifetime, in my early 20s, I played Wendy and Peter Pan at the Montgomery uh, Shakespeare Festival. Which is one of the one of the best theater companies in the United States. So I I lived in Montgomery Shakespeare Festival. Sorry,
2: don't they call it Alabama Shakes or something? That that is called the
0: Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gorgeous theater, top notch, and the city is such an interesting city. Back then, the Maya Lin. Civil Rights Memorial had just opened in Montgomery. You can see both when you're there. It's another very beautiful, very minimalistic. Also, also yeah. the, um,
2: the Montgomery bus boycott happened there. So there's a Rosa Parks Museum and, you know, Selma's not that far away. There's a lot of great history there.
0: A lot of great history and a lot of great country music. And I spent most of my time when I wasn't on stage playing pool, uh, great pool halls. Really, really a fun, interesting town to visit. And I'm Um, glad
1: that that part of the world is, is embracing this past now. Not embracing, it's not the right word, but they're acknowledging it. Because for a long time, you know, a lot of Americans recognized that Alabama was a place where a lot of this happened, but a lot of the sites weren't preserved. There weren't a lot of museums you could go to. So I'm really glad to see Alabama sort of, you know, taking its place in American history. This way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one I wanted to highlight is the one we started with, which is Gloria Steinem. The, the woman herself, she wrote a piece for us. And it's interesting. Uh, I put this up on social media and all my friends said, I'm so surprised she didn't pick Seneca Falls or a feminist site, but instead she chose Serpent Mounds National Historic Park, which is an earthwork from Native American times that that is thousands of years old. And she starts this by saying that a lot of people wrongly think of the United States as a young country, as a place that humans weren't in until their ancestors arrived. But Actually, these mounds predate the pyramids in Egypt and in their own way required as much engineering know-how. They're remarkable feats of of engineering. And so I was so glad that, that she's shown a spotlight on that. It's in Ohio, where Gloria Steinem is from. She has a wonderful memoir called My Life on the Road. So she actually wrote her memoir, as a travel book. And I, she was the one author who I really wanted to get and we got her. And I, I I just, the day she said she would do this for us uh, was, was a red letter day. She's a
1: writer. Uh, People forget that that's really, you know, how she began her career is writing. She's a good writer.
2: She's a great writer. Yeah. I mean, she has all that magazine training too, Ms. Magazine and um, New York. The-
0: well, she, so she wrote this for us. She didn't do it as an interview. And it's interesting. She turned it in, it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't need any editing. It just, you could see her, her years at, at Ms. Magazine. It's hard to picture what a
1: serpent mound is, though. There's a great photo of, uh, like a, directly overhead of these giant earthworks that have somehow lasted all of these years. By the way, let me quickly give the URL because we haven't yet, just so people will have it in mind.
0: Oh, good idea.
1: It's fromers.com slash best places 2021.
2: The purpose of the mound, it, uh, they're not sure, right? It was either burial or astrological yeah. ceremonies, something like that. They didn't leave an instruction manual
1: behind. But there's also apparently a, many more of these across the country, but they've been covered over with housing developments or bulldoze. So, you know, they're, they're, this isn't the only one. This is just one of the ones that happened to have been preserved, luckily, through all this time.
0: And just a, a note another program note if you hear weird hissing or growling in the background my cat Me. has just <laughs> my cat has just been chased under the bed by our dog so uh, the fun of of working from home so I mean, anyway I've said
1: this to you guys before one of my favorite things about 2020 is that our ideal is perfection of just going out the window. We're like, oh, she has a cat. <laughs> no one cares anymore. We don't need hopefully, – hopefully the expectation of perfection will never return. Okay, my, my next one is um, Fanny Flagg. Now, I happen to love Fanny Flagg. She's a really gorgeous storyteller. She's been writing for years. You probably know her work from the movie Fried Green Tomatoes. It was based on her book Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. She's a very Southern lore type of person. Uh, she actually was nominated for the Oscar for writing that screenplay for her own book. Her new book is the sequel, apparently, to Fried Green Tomatoes, which I haven't read yet, but it's called The Wonder Boy of Whistle Stop, and it just came out. And I like her, she's just you know she's like your favorite aunt. She used to be on Match Game, you know. She she has stories you wouldn't believe, but she's so unpretentious, and she chose a place that is incredibly unpretentious in its own way. It's it's called Solvang. California. And it's sort of in between Santa Barbara and Los Angeles. So it's sort of accessible to both. And this town, there's a few of these little types of towns across America that are sort of dedicated to one European country, sort of in theme. I know there's a place called Helen, Georgia, that's more German. This is a Danish town in the mountains of California, well, the hilly mountains of California. Everything looks Danish to uh, to an Epcot degree, you could say. It's very souped up super saturated version of Denmark, you know, with, with the Christmas lights up all the time, and they have frequent days when people dress in traditional garb and march down the streets. And she said she she found it when she was writing a book in 2002, and she lives in Santa Barbara. So she wanted something sort of close, but not home, so she could write. And she wandered in there, and she just couldn't believe it, because it has little windmills, you know, everything. everyone's dressed up in their folk clothing, and they're so happy. And the, the food there is delicious because it's, it's supposed to be fun in Danish. So they're, they're eating apple skeever pancakes, which are, I, it's a Danish sort of, you know, delicacy sort of pastry, but they're very popular there. Uh, lots of waffles. So she loved it. And she said she, um, she, she got a place there. She rented her apartment there. She still has it. So you might see Fanny flag if you go up to Solvang. And, um, she said to me that, you know, a friend of hers, a New Yorker said, "Ugh, it's just like Disneyland. And Fanny said, well, what's the matter with that? (laughs) She loves it because it's happy. She loves it because it's a great testament to people coming from other parts of the world, bringing a little piece of home with them, but also making it American, making it a new thing, a new, you know, commercially viable place to live and be safe. She was great. I had so much fun talking to her. I talked to her for much longer than much more than I could fit into the piece. We talked about, you know, when she filmed Harper Valley PTA and so much fun. Anyway, it was great. I love her choice. Solvang, California, the little Danish town that's like Disneyland.
0: I I was surprised that she didn't choose a place in the South since that seems to be her wheelhouse. You
1: know, I don't think she's lived in the South since she was young. She's has, that's another Alabama connection. She's from Birmingham. mm Yep. That's right. She, she, she went to New York and then she's been in
2: California. Well, since match game in Parker Valley, at least. I have another California one that has to do with immigrants, but on a, on a, on a more somber key, um, Uh, The novelist Susan Choi, who wrote Trust Exercise, that won the National Book Award, she picked um, the Manzanar National Historic Site, which was one of 10 prison camps where Japanese Americans were interned during World War II it's in the Owens Valley, which is at the foot of the Sierra Nevada, about 200 miles north of Los Angeles. And it, it was a pivotal location in, in her novel, uh, American Woman, which is mostly about the uh, novelization of the Patty Hearst kidnapping. But there's a character in, in who uh, I think her father spent time at uh, Manzanar, and that's where the, the end of the novel happens. But Susan Choi said that uh, she's never been there, but she's always been drawn to it because she she says it stands for this idea of justice and the idea that we have to do better. And when we spoke, she she connected the site to, to sort of similar xenophobic policies in our own day, such as the separation of families at the U.S. border, Uh, with mexico and she said that i wish every american could be taken to manzanar or a place like it so that you could look at what a serious mistake that really damages your nation and your people what that looks like and then think are we making other mistakes like that right now you can't go back and not have japanese americans interned but there are a lot of mistakes we could be fixing right now yeah that was very relevant
0: you're the downer guy today Ah. zach (laughs) Ah. Now I have to, to say, I mean, pancake. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, what's really fun about this article is there are some very serious mini essays like the one Zach has been talking about and some lighter ones and some in between. My f- I, I shouldn't say this. Should I say which my favorite is? Oh, I'm just about to. My favorite was written by the historian Daniel Ockrent. And it's interesting. Some people chose places that you've never heard of, like uh, Margaret Verbal chose Fort in Oklahoma. Fort Gibson in Oklahoma. And uh, the, the Avra Valley of Arizona was cho- chosen by Lydia Millet, who's a terrific writer. But Daniel chose something that seems obvious. He chose Ellis Island. And again, the focus is on immigration, but he wrote about it in such an insightful, beautiful way. I'm not reading. It's well, he actually was he was a finalist for the Pulitzer. Our other two two historians did get Pulitzers, but I think Daniel, Daniel writes he was a finalist. Oh, anyway, uh, he should have gotten it. Damn it. He's so good. And he writes, I, I'm not gonna read it, I'm just gonna do it for memory. He writes something to the effect of it's ironic that Ellis Island may be the most American place in the US because the people who came there weren't Americans. And yet this is where millions of American stories began. And when you go there, you can picture what your ancestors might have looked like in their tattered coats with all their belongings at their feet. But they never in a million years could imagine you today... Their descendants, people who are as American as those who came over on the Mayflower. That just that just made me, maybe because my grandmother came through Ellis Island. So oh, really? I, I have a, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Her name's up, Pauline Abrams. Uh, I'm named you, for
2: her. Where did she immigrate from?
0: She immigrated from Womja, which was a little town that toggled back and forth between Russia and Poland. So it really depends. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: It it depends when you're talking about it. it, um, I actually visited it. Yeah. lucky them. Well, she was escaping her, both her, she was 16 when she came through. Both her parents had died of typhoid. Uh, and so she took her five younger brothers and sisters on this incredible journey across Europe to England and where she was able to get a, a boat and get them to the United States and all kinds of crazy. I'll, I'll talk about it someday on this podcast. I'll yeah, that's crazy a, adventures. I'd love to hear that. Mm-hmm. that it's R- it's R- a R- great, R- great story. Is that R- but- R- that's Arthur's mother. Wow. Yeah, who I'm named for. I never knew her because uh, she died before I was born, but... And
1: Ellis so, uh, is such a terrific museum. It's really one of the best, just plain old museum museums, the way it's done, I think, anywhere, not just in America.
0: Yeah. No, they they did an extraordinary job with it. it just uh, polished it up to a fine gleam, except for one part that they left looking like like it did. You know, it was abandoned for many years before they turned it into a museum and they left one part somewhat crumbling and you have to go through with a hard hat. That's a special tour. You pay extra for that. Uh, but it's it's so worth it. And fascinating stories are told at the museum. You learn about the people who got turned back. You learn about the medical tests they had to do, the kind of sneaky tests that were given to make sure they weren't communists, you know, that, those kind of things. So yeah, Ellis Island. That's yeah. that's that's the and second there are a lot one of places of where people
1: came into the country. Ellis Island just happens to have now been really well preserved. It's attached to the Statue of Liberty as part of a national park unit um, because you know, you could have come in through Philly, through Boston. But now this is the place that we decide is now going to stand for so many of our immigration stories.
0: Well, I would say it should stand for and it, it should, because it's gorgeous, too. Well, it's not only that it's gorgeous, more people came Mm -hmm. through there than through any other It's a miracle it survived,
1: really, because once they were done with it, like what was in the 1950s or something, you know, it took a while until people started to
2: really realize how
1: important it was.
2: There's that island next to, uh, in San Francisco that they call Ellis Island West, and it has, yeah, nothing has been preserved.
0: Angel Island, isn't it?
2: Yeah, but it's mostly a nature preserve now
0: huh interesting all right jason what's your next one
1: okay there's a there's a gorgeous writer named sahar mustafa Uh, this year um sahar's book the beauty of your face was named a new york times notable book so by that's i think pretty astonishing it's not a bad achievement yeah the the choice here is the arab american national museum We're talking about on a museum kick right now this is in detroit People, um, I think, outside of Detroit, don't realize how important that area is to the Arab American community. It's uh, it's it's got one of the richest Arab American communities in our country, and interestingly, Toronto and that part of Canada across the border that also has a very rich. So there's an Arab American museum in Dearborn, which is you know not too far from Detroit, uh, which is also I think where the Henry Ford Museum is. So this museum is very much about American innovation, in particular Arab American innovation, and uh, what what Sahar said. Was striking about the museum is that you know Arab Americans are not some monolith. They're all different kinds of people from different countries, different cultures, different education and wealth levels that came in to wo- to weave into the national tapestry. And I, what I love about this entry too is there's some other suggestions of what to do when you're nearby, like a great little bakery, <laughs> wasn't that great? And, and another place to get some uh, some some dessert. So, so I love that the, the the recommendation of the museum is also tied into okay while you're in town you want to learn a little bit more about this culture you want to taste it here's what to do I thought that was very a thoughtful way to to end the the write up
0: and not by uh, we didn't do this on purpose but another one of our participants a wonderful singer songwriter named Dar Williams who also wrote a really terrific book about the rejuvenation of American cities. Uh, her name is Dar Williams. She chose Detroit. So <laughs> you could read both entries to have a, an idea of why you should go there I think the when it's underrated.
1: underrated. I think there's so much to see and do and learn about what's been lost as well as what it meant to the formation of the country. I agree.
0: So, Zach, what's your next one?
2: I picked one of those that we've never heard of, Fort Gibson in Oklahoma, and that was chosen by Margaret Verbal, who's a novelist. She's written novels set at uh, or that feature. Fort Gibson called Maud's Line, which was the Pulitzer Prize finalist, and Cherokee America. Uh, what Fort Gibson is, she says that it's seen more history than almost anywhere else in the West. It was a military establishment. that's in eastern Oklahoma, near Muskogee, uh, So it's near the the convergence of the Arkansas-Vertigreen Grand Rivers, which is known as the Three Forks. So it was very critical. And um, it was established in 1824 uh, to sort of keep the peace between the Osage and Cherokee peoples. It later played a and- role... In the, mm-hmm.
0: And she is a member of the Cherokee Nation. Yeah. She is of uh, mm-hmm. Native American descent. Sorry, oh. and it, you
2: know it was it was used to sign treaties for Native lands and launch a lot of military expeditions for westward expansion. It was kind of a. Uh, it was it was about pacific pacifying native people, so there were no battles or massacres that took place there, which is good. But it was it did play a, this role in the U.S. expansion of the frontier, um, so it was very pivotal back then. But then it kind of went out of commission in the after the Civil War. I think it, it closed down in the 1880s and fell into disrepair. Now they've reconstructed the stockade. Uh, it's this log, these log buildings and historic buildings. And so you can go there and get that history or, you know, reflect on the ephemerality of human history because by going to the the nearby Sequoia State Park, which is beautiful on Fort Gibson Lake. So there's a lot to do there. And nature and history, you can reflect on U.S. Yeah. Yeah, it's no funny. I've, been, I've
1: been here and I've been to to Manzanar. <laughs> so I've, i really? seem to have built these these yeah, these isolated places. But this is in the eastern Oklahoma, Cherokee country. And not too far away, you know, within an hour's drive or so, I think, it's that you can go to the Cherokee Heritage Center. And mm-hmm. if you think you have any Cherokee blood, especially as it might relate to the post Trail of Tears censuses that were done, you can look up your, your genealogy there, which uh, which I do because apparently some wing of my family apparently is connected in some way. I didn't find anything, but you can do it. Uh, and I know a lot of
2: people are interested in that part of their heritage. Yeah, it's in, it's in Sequoia State Park is in Cherokee County.
0: Interesting. Yeah, or, no, as she, she's a, she's a she was a very impressive writer. She's won awards uh, for. Westerns. She um, was a runner up for the Pulitzer prize. And uh, I thought what she, she kind of, she kind of said with pride, she thinks this is one of the places in the U S with the most history. And yet very few people know about it. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Who goes to Oklahoma for vacation, but it's one of those places that you'll find a lot more than you think. This Mm -hmm. is closer to Tulsa than it is to Oklahoma city, which still aren't too very far from each other either. So it's, it's completely doable. See Tulsa while you're at it. There's a lot there
2: too. Yeah, absolutely. If you, you, uh, Go a little bit further east. You're in Arkansas, you can go to the That's Ozarks, my right. home state, go crazy.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's great. All right. So, the last one is one that Dad and I did together. We decided to collaborate, and it is Philadelphia's Independence Hall, which is something that I think a lot of school children get dragged to, but they make it so interesting. You know, the National Park Rangers are. America's great treasure in terms of how erudite and what amazing storytellers they are. I've found that in pretty much every park, but I feel like, and I have no evidence for this, but I feel like the ones who are really, really good get to work at Independence Hall, that maybe that's a promotion for them because they just had me spellbound when I was there about two years ago. You think you know what you're going to see at Independence Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You saw the musical 1776, Sit Down, John, all of that. But they bring to life, what a tumultuous, angry process creating our constitution was. The men who did it Came in from very different parts of the United States, had huge disagreements. They made some huge mistakes, like allowing the country to go forward with slavery. But what they did was they compromised and they created a system where compromise was at the heart of it. They created a system, as we all know, of checks and balances where no one person would have too much power uh, because they were coming from a monarchy. They did not want America to devolve into a place where the cult of personality was all. They wanted it to be a place where the people had a voice. Now, of course, back then they defined people pretty narrowly. It was landowners. It wasn't women. It wasn't people of color. You know, there were a lot of problems with what they did, but the system they tried to create, I truly believe was a very smart one in terms of the balance at its heart, that no one piece was supposed to have too much power. And in the last couple of years... We've seen that system get out of whack, or we've seen a lot of people trying to push that system out of whack. And so that's why my father and I felt that this is a place Americans should go back to, to see and understand better what the nation was founded for.
1: Yeah. In essence, the things that America, that the colonists were struggling with, the issues they were struggling with are really kind of the same issues we are still struggling with, you know? Yeah. But, but you're right. They, they all agreed to disagree in, in the most uh, civilized way. They said, let's all compromise and agree to keep compromising as a way to keep all the, all, all of us afloat. And when, When any side stops compromising, then the system goes out of whack. And that's why it's such an important lesson to remember that in order for the system to work, you have to agree to the way the system works.
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
2: Um, absolutely. Finding consensus. That's the only kind of way you can move forward under our system. Yeah.
0: So those are those are some of the ones we thought we would focus on. But if you read, go there, you'll read an uh, incredibly charming piece by David Sedaris. Uh, you'll read things by Timothy Egan, by uh, Lydia Millet, by Rick Atkinson,
2: Rick mm-hmm. Atkinson, Tara Nesbitt. Nesbitt. yeah, yeah,
0: Tara Nesbit Nesbitt. We just That's have this. Fine. So it, it's been uh, it was a challenge to get people to do this. <laughs> I had to do a lot of emails back and forth, except for Jody Pickelt. Bless Jody Pickelt. She not only said yes, she immediately sent in her submission and it was really great. When I saw that, I knew we had an article. So we hope you'll come to Fromers.com. Uh, we thank you for listening this week. We'll be back next week. And for those who may be traveling, may we wish you, should we try and do it at once, a hearty. bon, bon voyage. Bon voyage.